When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Into the Archives, definitely one of the greatest hitters of of my generation. He was a batting champ. He was a nine-time All-Star. He's a World Series champ. I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Welcome, Gary Sheffield. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Chef. Thanks for coming on the program. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me, buddy. You got it. You got it. Uh, what was more fun? 97 World Series against Cleveland or 1980 Little League World Series against Taiwan? Wow. <laughs> that's a good day. Hey, that's a good. Right off the bat, you hit me with that one, huh? Well, I, I as I, kids, I, though, I, as kids. When I was a kid, man, I loved that little league tournament, and we got to the state finals, yeah. got bounced. But you know, as a kid, you got to, you got to go yeah. there. Williamsport was like, like a fake place. Like, no, it doesn't really yeah. exist, and, and you're fighting for it every year. You actually got there. Well, you know what? I, I, I I'm gonna answer it like this: We all dream, we all live and dream, and work our tails off all our lives to win a World Series. And I would never, uh, you know, forget that moment. I will always cherish it. But the stepping stone to get to that point was the Little League World Series. I had more fun there because, number one, Willie Stargell came and spoke to everybody at, at, at the facility. And he said that, you know, have fun, live out your dreams, and one of, and, and one of you guys are going to see this and, and, and what I'm saying, and you're going to be the guy to be where I'm at. And I was that kid that was looking at Willie Stargell, and I was like, I'm looking at this man like a, a, a god. And when you're talking about Willie Stargell being in the Major League Baseball as a kid, you can't even think of being where he's at. And when I made it to the big leagues, I always go back to those memories. And so that was more fun for me. I'm telling you, I'm with you. Because, you know, as ex-players, we get asked all the time, you know, I'm sure you get asked, oh, what was your favorite place? What, you know, what was big, your biggest moments? And I tell, especially kids and young kids today, I said, enjoy that childhood, man. I said, I, I was very lucky. I got to play in the big leagues a long time. You know, I got to 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 play on some great teams. I got to go to World Series, but I'll tell you those those little league games and that fight in that tournament when you're trying to get you know to the state final and then you pass there and you're going to the next level. I, I said, to be honest with you, those are the some of the funnest times of my life because you, there's not a worry in the world. It's man, right. how many hits you get right. today? We got four, and we're going to get a Slurpee and a, and a pretzel with my buddies, <laughs> and then we're going to hang out and talk talk to some girls on the and, phone. I mean, those are the innocent times uh, well, that I well, love. You know, this no game, the big, age, but. <laughs> <laughs> big leagues is hard, man. I tell them, I said, the big, big leagues is a grind. It was, it was just, 
it was about fellowship, you know, with your, your teammates and, and, and being a kid. That's what it was all about. Yep. So you're born in Tampa, Florida. Uh, tell me about your childhood. I want to, a young Gary Sheffield growing up, what it was like. Uh, were you a fan of anybody? What, who was your team? Well, I used to follow the Cincinnati Reds and um, with Pete Rose. Pete Rose was like, when I was younger, he was like one of my favorites. And when I when when my granddad, which is Dwight Gooden's dad, he um, started educating me on different players, and he he used to always bring up Hank Aaron, and he used to say, you know, you you remind me of Hank Aaron. He said, you you swing down on the ball, you lift your back foot off the ground, all the similarities that Hank Aaron did, and so I started taking an interest in it, and I started thinking about baseball more than I did football because I was really good in football and everybody thought I was going to be a football player. And so when I started studying Hank Aaron and, 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 and seeing what it, what he had to go through just to play baseball. And then, you know, he, he withstood all of that and became as great as he was. I said, he overcame everything and it didn't stop him. And that was my philosophy when I played the game, no matter what a fan say, what the people say, what anybody say, I'm overcome it. And, and so I always wanted to be that guy that, that says, I told you so. And so when I started studying these players, then I found my position, which was shortstop. Then Barry Larkin became my favorite player. And so I patterned everything around him. They, they, they used spring training at, uh, they had spring training at Al Lopez field. And I used to go watch him play. And when I watched Barry Larkin play, you know, Pete Rose became my second favorite. And Hank Aaron was my third favorite. But then Barry Larkin became my first. But, you know, for my granddad, I always said Hank Aaron was my favorite player. Yeah, and I, I got to play. I played with Lark. He was my double play combination for five. He was a great player. And and Lark, to me, he was yeah. amazing because he, you know, the, he'd make fun of my glove. I'd make fun of his, but I really couldn't <laughs> understand. I said, Lark, how can you use that thing? It's like cardboard. But we had we had something between <laughs> us that, you know, we could make these spinning plays and just and I always knew he was going to be there and he knew I was going to be there. We had that that trust thing that you, you get with a with a double play combo. You mentioned Hank Aaron. And and he was one of my favorites too. And and the reason is this: right. I I never thought he got his just due because it's always right. Hammer and Hank, and it's always we're talking about the home runs. And yes, right. he, he you know he hit a ton of homers, but he was so right. much more than a home run hitter. This guy, when he was young, stealing bases, hitting three hundred all the time, driving in runs. I mean, he was a complete player. But I think he gets pigeonholed into that that home run champ thing, you know, when really. He's probably top five all-time uh, player in the history of this game. Well, you know, this is where, you know, when we talk about numbers, people get lost in the numbers and start labeling guys as this or that. I've always been of the notion that there's different dynamics that happen on the baseball field per day, per at-bat, per game. And if you're a player – that when they when that team shows up to your city or you show up to their city and they're talking about you longer than they're talking about anybody else on that team on your team then you have to be de- they got to defend you and so there's a lot of things that go into it 
you know, I used to walk a lot. And the reason I used to walk a lot is because I never understood why people would, uh, or pitchers or teams would intentionally walk me in the first inning. And I never understood it. And I used to get upset. And one day I was in the batting cage and, and uh, Barry Barnes and Bobby Barnes were walking in the cage. And uh, Bobby Barnes said to me, hey, man, what the hell is going on with you? What's wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? He said, why you get so upset when they walk you? I said, man, I can't help my team because they walk at me. He said, what do you mean? You are helping your team by taking walks. And he said, when you t- start understanding to take walks, you're going to make everybody in your lineup better and your numbers are going to go up. I still didn't understand it. I said, no way. How, how my numbers are going to go up and I'm not getting a chance to drive in these two runs that they intentionally walk me and to load the bases for somebody else to drive them in. He said, when you learn how to take walks and you be patient, you're always going to get the pitch you're looking for. Is they going to always come to you? And when I took, I took that to heart and I started thinking about it, and I said, okay, I'm going to be all-out team player. Whatever the team needs me to do, I'm going to do it because I want to make everybody better and I want to win. And when I started doing that, my whole game changed. And so this is what I say to that. When people talk about somebody have more home runs than me or whatever, I say go check every box there is in baseball and you see how I stack up against any player that ever played this game. Because when you walk 168 times and hit 330, hit 39 home runs and drive in 136 with 168 walks, what your numbers would have been if they would have pitched to me? And that's yeah. what I say to that. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's the body of work because there's a lot of guys in, in our generation, you know, and you mentioned the epitome of it, which was Barry, who was walking at, you know, Ruthie and Clips. And it, it, you you were watching the same time I was, and I'm looking at him going, this guy's like on a different planet. He's walking 250 times. If they pitched to him, he'd hit one off the monument or, you know, it's ricocheting off the facade. But you're right. It, it's that, that intentional walk, especially. Obviously, it's it's a show of respect by the other team. It's almost like. I don't. I don't know about you. I didn't get intentionally walked as much as you did, but but, but I'll tell you that I'll that, tell you this when that, I that when year, I did that big year you had. I know you did plenty of times. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I did. It, it, a little uh, a little part inside me like this guy's scared of me. He's going to pitch to Edgar Martinez instead of me. Uh, and, and Edgar, man, it would piss it would piss him off if they'd intentionally walked me to get to him. You know, because he was kind of a mentor for me. He helped me a lot in the second half of my career, right. thinking through the game. Right. But I. I I just felt like as soon as you intentionally walk me, man, I got an edge on you next time. I know you're scared. And now you got to pitch right. to me. Uh, you know, I always took it as a, absolutely. I always took it as no, a, but you're, a, making, uh, you're making a good point, though. What you're saying right there, you're making the point. And that's what that's what Bobby Barnes taught me. And I never understood it. I was too young to understand it. And when when I really start taking it to heart, it start happening. The game starts slowing down. The game became easier when you when you don't spit when you when you spit on breaking balls down and away, then they're gonna brush you in. They're gonna always come back middle away. Right. And I used to feast off of it. And all he told me was, "Don't miss. And if you don't miss, 
don't hit a lot of foul balls. When you swing, make contact. And that's what I did. And the game slowed down so slow for me. It was one of those things where I can predict my season. And it was one of those things where I, I sat back and I said, you know, all I need is this, this, and this as a player, and I will win a championship. And when we got that in Florida, that's when we brought home the championship. You make a great point. And isn't it funny when they, when they come to you? Like when you used to get brushed back by a pitch, that pitcher thinks really now that you're going to get scared <laughs> and get off the plate. It's like, how, st- how easy is this for me? I know where you're going next. Right, it cracks right. me up when they, when they think they really intimidated you with that up and in fastball. It's like, no, it either got away from me or he did it on purpose to set out the outside right. court. What am I scared now? What are you going to get me off? The, I, I just laugh when pitchers think that for the for the bulk of hitters and the true hitters, it, you, that didn't mean one thing to them. That just they that no. just it, it reiterates in their mind that we know where you're going next. Exactly, and that's why that's why with the saving sabermetrics right now i would i would be curious to know what what would they say in their report now as a for pitching to me guys that threw 95 and above it became easier to hit for me because i know that they they're in love with their fastball and when you're in love with your fastball i'm going to i'm going to take that pitch away from you to make you go to the breaking ball to get you behind in the count so I can get the fastball. And so those type of games that's going, you know, that gamesmanship that's going on live in real time, those are the things that I watch game today. And I sit at home with my kids and I call the pitches. I call the pitches before the catcher even put the pitch down. And I tell them what's coming. And I said, when a guy comes out of a bullpen to pitch to me, he's in trouble already because he has to get strike one and I'm not giving it to you. So I make those guys job a lot harder. So when they say, well, the, 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 the saber metric says, and the stat says, bring in this reliever for three innings and bring this guy in for two and bring this guy in for one. My philosophy is you still have to get strike one. And if they come out of the bullpen and don't get strike one, they're in trouble. Yeah, it's it's so true. And, and yeah. you know, you, you talk about being a young player versus a veteran player. And, and we all learn this as we get older, uh, you know, yeah. especially the guys that drive in a lot of runs is, <clears throat> you know, when I was a kid, man, I was just hair was on fire and I'm swinging hard and I'd get that bases loaded. And, and the first thing I'd go through, oh, I got to drive in, you know, I don't have to hit a home run. But, man, if I hit one in the gap here, that's three ribbies. As I got a little bit older, you know, some veteran players would tell me, they say, listen, when you got the bases loaded, the pressure's on that pitcher. Breathe a little mm-hmm. bit. He's got to come to you. Right. You don't have to go to him. And that's why you see right. young players getting taken advantage of in, in those big situations until they get the experience. The great ones, they're going to learn pretty quick and, and they're going to learn how to <laughs> how to breathe and, and take the pressure off themselves. But all this is this is really fun stuff. I love talking about this. I this side of the uh, of the game that that cat and mouse that gamesmanship it's it's so cool and so interesting to me um well let me let me say this to to piggyback off your point i will, i was always taught if you got bases loaded your only responsibility is the man on third base that's right so exactly that alleviates pressure 
See, now you're thinking three guys opposed to one. And if you think one, then there's less pressure. So when I played the game, I never felt pressure because I never tried to do too much. Now, sometimes I get out of myself and try to do that, and it never works out. But when I keep it simple and say my only job is to get that man in from third base, if I get a run in, that means my team is winning. If you keep the game on the team and keep the game on trying to win games, then you get out of self. And so when you remove yourself and, and stop saying, I need to do, put up these numbers and I need to do this, <clears throat> the game becomes easy because the scoreboard tells you how to hit. It, the, however, however many runs on the board, whether we're winning or losing, tells me what I need to do. I don't need to go up there and say, I got to hit a home run because we're losing by three. Well, there's one guy on. If you hit a home run, you're still losing by one. So my job is to keep the rally going because the more men on base, the more the pitcher going to feel it. And so that's how I played the game. I played to the scoreboard, and I hit to the scoreboard. And and I can't say it enough, the the point you made about playing the game right, playing it correctly, playing to win. In the end, if you do that day in and day out, uh, your numbers would be there and probably even better than you imagined if you if you take yeah. that that approach to the game of baseball. I, I truly believe that because I've seen, you know, that the great players I got to play with, they did it that way. And that's who I right. learned from. And 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 they told me, listen. Trust me on this. And, and the more I saw it and the more I, I witnessed it, uh, I started to believe it. And, and I started putting into practice what they told me to do. And, and it is. And it's it's the truth. Uh, you mentioned right. Doc. We had Doc on the program a couple months back. How much time you spent with him as a kid? Well, he was he was my brother. Um, my mom, that, that's that's her little brother. Um, you know, she grew up living with her mom and dad, which was his mom and dad. And so before we moved out, I was living in the same house, same room with him. And so Doc used to wake me up at 6 o'clock every morning, and I used to hate it. And I used to get dominated day in and day out by him. You know, Doc used to wake up the whole neighborhood by hitting a can, going down, walking down, taking his bat, throw the bat to the home plate, and try to hit the bat. That, that determines if he was out or safe. So he used to play these games in his head as a kid. And I used to watch him, and I was like, this is a stupid game. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so I used to be like, he, he, he does this for three, four, five hours a day. And everybody knew him from the neighborhood of doing that. And so when I got of age where he could pitch to me, hit ground balls to me, I had, he could throw to me, uh, and all these things, I used to get dominated. And I used to hate it. I used to go in the house crying, and my granddad would toss the ball back outside. And they were like, you know, Dwight, try not to be too rough on him, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so he never took it easy on me. And so those are the things that I value the most, and I appreciate what he did because I didn't know it. At the time, he was only preparing me for what I became. And, and, and so when I first – hit a home run off of him on top of the house. He got upset with me and beat me up. And so when he beat me up, I went in the house crying. My mom is getting into it with Doc, you know, which is her brother. And they're fighting and getting upset. And five minutes later, I'm back outside playing with him. 
not even skipping a beat. Like, Mom, it's okay. I'm going back outside. And when we continued to do that, it just built so much toughness and mental toughness for me. When I faced Nolan Ryan for the first time, I wasn't scared. And so I appreciate all those moments. That's pretty cool. You face Nolan. You know, I've been facing Nolan my whole life since I was five years old. <laughs> uh, you went to Hillsboro High. You you went to Hillsboro High. You followed Doc. I think Doc's probably me and you are a similar age. I think Doc's four or five years older than us. But he went there yeah, first. He's four think, years. Yeah. Yeah. You went to Hillsboro High. Uh, take me through the high school and when you started knowing that this is this is what I'm going to do for a living. I know that. Uh, you know, we, we'll get to it a little bit. I know you got drafted first round six overall by the Brewers, uh, but you were going to go to Miami if you didn't sign professionally. Take me through that high school and, and your thought process and how you wanted to continue on uh, baseball-wise. Well, when Doc made it, that was the first time I realized I had a chance to make it. Uh, coming from the inner city, coming from really nothing, it was never a thought in my mind, I can be Willie Stardew. I can be with um, Barry Larkin, Pete Rose. I can't be where they're at. They're, they're larger than life to me in my mind. And when, when I got to Hillsboro, I was a leadoff hitter my first year, and we didn't have a fence. When Doc won Cy Young, he built the fence. He paid for a fence so we can hit home runs or whatever. So my 11th grade year, that's when everybody started noticing me. And I hit nine home runs in 20 games. And I ran a 6-5. And I played shortstop. And I pitched. I threw 92 miles an hour. I was 8-0. And so I thought I was a pitcher because Doc was a pitcher. But my granddaddy used to always tell me, you're going to be one of the best hitters that ever lives. And I used to be like, okay. It like it was nothing. But he used to repeat this every single day. You're going to be one of the best hitters to ever live. I say, Brendan, why would you? Why why you say that to me? You know because you know what 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 what's your reference for you know for saying that? He said, when I watch you hit, I've, I've always trained you with older guys, and you dominate older guys. He said, when you get to the big league, they're going to be older than you, and so I don't never want you to back down because you have inside power. And I said, inside power. He said, yeah, you had inside power. And I said, okay. So now when I got to 12th grade, we played 20 games. I hit 500, had 15 home runs. I drove in 30 runs, and I had 30 walks. And every school in America sent me letters. Every, every major league team was following me my whole 12th grade year. They was following me. everything I did. They wanted to meet my friends. They wanted to talk to my friends. They wanted to know what I ate, everything. And so they, they just pop up on me at practice and say, we want you to run the 60. And I run a 6'5". They'll watch me throw from shortstop. And I used to throw the ball over there. And I used to, you know, like, I, I used to flick the ball from shortstop. But that day, I used to try to throw it over there like Sean Dunstan. And so yeah. I started throwing the ball across the diamond like that, over the top, and put the, get that carry on the ball. And so when I started seeing all of this, my mom looked at me and said, you're going to uh, get drafted. And I was like, 
just like Doc? And she's like, yes, you're going to get drafted. So when that happened, I, I thought I – thought, well, before that, I was, I was going around school and I became very popular at school. Everybody thought I was famous. And so I used to tell people I'm going in the first round and I'm assigned for this kind of money. And everybody used to laugh at me. And when it happened, everybody flocked to me after that. It was like I was you were everybody's like, buddy. <laughs> huh? You were everybody's buddy then. Right. I was everybody's buddy and, and they they didn't think I was so crazy then. And so so now you see Doc in the big leagues and now you see me in the big leagues. And when I get to the minor leagues, I put up some numbers that they said that they, they've never seen numbers like this in the minor leagues. My first year, I hit 365, 15 home runs, and 72 RBIs. That's after getting on the campus at University of Miami for three weeks. And then I showed up three weeks late, and I only played 54 games. Then I wound up hitting um, 275, 19 home runs, 105 RBIs. And then that's and and I led I led the Milwaukee Brewers big league team every year in spring training and batting average home runs and RBIs and they kept sending me back to the minors. So then when I hit 365, 44 home runs and 140 RBIs, that's when they called me up, and that's when my career started. Yeah, because it's it's amazing. First of all, the minor league season's only five months, so it's pretty rare. Right. Even today, you see a guy drive mm-hmm. in a hundred runs. I mean, that's like wow. Right. You see a hundred in the minor leagues. That's a big deal. So the fact right. that you were doing that, uh, I went to college route. I went to USC, but man, I, I just wasn't a high pick. You know, I got picked in the 29th round or something. You were the sixth pick overall, so that kind of decision was made for you. Like, no, when you're the sixth pick, you got to sign and and go. Uh, I don't know. I think college did good for me. I got to grow up a little bit, but some guys are ready out of high school. How was that going from high school baseball to, I think you went to Helena, Montana for for your yeah. first assignment. Uh, how was that adjustment for you? It sounds like it went pretty smooth. Cause you know, you know, chef, most kids when they're 18, 17, 18 years old, that first year is a rough year. That's an adjustment. You know, you got a bunch of kids from the Dominican throwing a hundred that have been pros for five years and you're just coming from high school. So everybody doesn't make that adjustment as well as you did. Take me through that adjustment period. Was there any, it sounded like there wasn't that big of an adjustment for you. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Well, the first week, I, it, it was tough for me because I was swinging and I was hitting everything foul and I was too early on everything. I was just blessed to have great teammates like Greg Barn and Daryl Hamilton, God bless the dead. Um, I was able to sit up under those guys and learn and, and them walk me through things and talk to, to me because they was older than me and they would always tell me, you're a phenom. That, that's what they used to call me. And they used to say, Fifi. And it was always phenom. And so I would always just, whatever they said, I, I did. Whatever they wanted me to do and how they wanted me to do it, I would do it. And they was like, man, 
you can do anything on the baseball field. You know, you're a shortstop hitting for power, hitting for average, driving in runs. I hit third coming out of high school. Greg Vaughn was hitting second. He came from University of Miami, and he was the guy that was walking me around the campus when I was on my recruit trip. So I felt comfortable because I knew Greg Vaughn was there with me. So what they did when Greg Vaughn and I and Daryl Hamilton, Daryl Hamilton led the team in batting average with 395. Greg led the uh, team in home runs with 18. I led the team in RBIs with 72. So what they did was they wanted to see if we can coexist, you know, without each other. And so they put Greg Vaughn in Beloit, um, low A ball. They put me and Daryl Hamilton in high A ball at Stockton, California. And basically they wanted to see if we can function without each other. So we did. We, we put up big years and that's how everything, you know, started to grow for us because we was able to perform without each other. So now when we linked back up and I was in the big leagues, we were supposed to be the cor- cornerstones for that franchise. And it just didn't work out that way. You know, it's amazing. I, I can't tell you how many guys uh, that's that Greg Vaughn's been a part of their life. And, uh, you know, I know Vonnie from off the field stuff. Uh, we were just back in Cincinnati doing a reunion back there. We got to chat in a little bit and, uh, you know, we do some golf events, but I'll tell you, it, he's the most brought up guy when it comes to, wow, Vonnie really took me under his wing. It seems like there's so many guys that he's helped and mentored. You know, I know my brother, when he played with Greg in, in Cincinnati, he said, man, Vonnie's the best, but I hear that all the yeah. time. And, and uh, it's really interesting that his name in was chef. You brought him up, Vonnie, Vonnie. Uh, he must've been something as far as a, an influence inside that clubhouse. Yeah. He was like a big brother to me and anybody that had a problem with me or whatever, Vonnie would handle it. He would, he just allowed me to play baseball. I didn't have to think about anything else. And, you know, being a young guy coming into the big leagues at 18 years old as a September call up and then first full year, 19, you know, you get a lot of heckling, you get a lot of, uh, you know, putting you in dresses and putting you in crazy yeah, yeah. stuff and all these type of things going on. And uh, Vonnie was like that big brother to me. And he just told me, you know, I've been to college and these things happen. Just go with the flow. And if you go with the flow, it'll, it'll end at some point. And if you perform, then they, they will respect you and then you, you'll be okay after that. And so all I did was focus on baseball. You know, I just, you know, that's all I did. I just focus on getting better, getting better at shortstop. You know, because, you know, two years out of high school, I'm playing shortstop in the big leagues. And so <clears throat> that was a little fast for me. And I and I can honestly say at this point, I wasn't mature enough to be in the big leagues, to be honest with you. Um, I had a lot of uh, gray areas that I just didn't understand about the game. And, and so I had to learn the hard way as, as a youngster, which propelled me and helped me later on in life. So when another young kid comes up, I never gave him the treatment that I got because I felt like I was treated unfairly, but at the same time, it made me the man I became. Yeah, 88, you make your debut, 89, you hit 247. 90, you start to figure it out a little bit. You hit 294, 10 homers, and 67. Nothing compared to your big years later in your career, but but – Man, you got to still only be what twenty, twenty-one years old at that at that right. point. Uh, 
Um, right. You, you you went through some injuries in '91 uh, with the Brewers, and after that year, after '91, you were traded to the Padres, and you played there for two years. I want to get into those Padres. This is the one thing that you know. I was when I was getting ready for my chef interview, I always look for little nuggets, and I thought. Well, that year, 92, it's your first All-Star game. You're the batting champ. You got to face Doc in the big leagues. But my biggest question, because I played with him too. I played in San Diego one year uh, in 2000. I got to play with Tony Gwynn. And, you know, I defensed him for years, and I could never figure him out. How do you win a batting title with Tony on your team? That's my question. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody does. That's like I I played with Ted Williams one year, and I won a batting title. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, Miss Felicia – Tony's wife, and um, she she did a documentary on Tony, and she flew down to Tampa do, to do this documentary on Tony Gwynn. And she said to me, and I never knew this, and I and I bust out in tears because she said Tony uh, Gwynn was so excited when they traded for me. He was like, yes. He was like over TV like a little kid. Was like He was like thankful to the organization that they brought me there. And from day one, Tony Gwynn is the first guy that greeted me and brought me in the cage. And he started hitting the ball off of his right hip. And I was watching this drill he was doing, and I was like, that is amazing. I was sitting here in amazement. And I was like, what are you doing? How do you hit a ball that's on your right hip and stay inside that baseball? And he said, I'm going to show you. And so, so we, we went to work. He started showing me this. And so – with that drill, it prepared me for never worry about the inside. So I take the inside part of the plate away from you, but I look middle away. And he showed me this trick. And when I went out there in the games, the game slowed down and it became easy. And on top of hitting behind him in the lineup, you know you got opportunities day in and day out. And so when I watch his at bat, I take his approach, I take – I go up there, use the approach. It works. Next thing you know, you're playing to win. You're playing for your team. You look up, here's the numbers. And just like you said earlier, when you just play the game the right way, the number's going to be there. Yeah, I love Tony. I mean, he was he 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 made it look so simple the way he 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 just approached <laughs> yeah. it. And, 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 and I told you, I, I defensed him for years. And, you know, I got to a point, Chef, I thought I was pretty damn good at second base at defensing people. Right. I couldn't figure Tony out. And, right. and I'd try to deke him, and, and I'd pretend like I was going to be somewhere. And as the ball was being delivered, I'd shift and go to another. He'd hit it where I wasn't every time. And I got to a point, <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. I said, I go up and hit yeah. four times a game every day. Big leagues, it ain't, it's, it's pretty hard. My job is to square up this ball, not where it's going to go. But I thought if there's anybody in the world that could, that could kind of aim the ball, it's Tony. So when I got to play with him in 2000, I did. I asked him, I said, T, tell me you don't hit the ball where I'm not, where I'm defending you <laughs> so I don't right, catch right. it. And he looked me dead in the eyes, serious as a heart attack. He said, Booney, absolutely I do. I watch you. I see right. where you're where you're setting up. And and you think you're out there tricking me, like you're, you're pretending like you're going to shade me up the middle, but then you're really going to play me to pull. He said, I see everything you're doing. And he said, absolutely. And you know what? I believed him. And he's the only guy I believe that did that on purpose. But it was, it was you had a cool team back then. You had Crime Dog. You had Tony. 
You had Benito, a young Benito. I got to play with him in Cincinnati. And one of my favorite teammates, uh, Tony Fernandez. Rest his soul. Yes. But he was one of my he was one of my favorites. I got to play with him one year in Cincinnati. And he played, you talk about Lark. He came into spring training from the Blue Jays and he had his blue glove. And you know, Tony was a he's a gold glove shortstop. And he comes to Cincinnati right. and and uh you know, Lark was our shortstop. And Tony's like, I'm right. playing short. And there's like, no, Tony, you're going to play third. He would not take ground balls at third base, <laughs> and he wouldn't talk. To, he wouldn't talk to anybody. He had his blue glove, and I was a young player. You know, I was a second baseman. I'm just a young player watching all this, and I'm going. He's really not going to play third, and it made Lark a little uncomfortable. Like uh, he knows yeah. that he's playing third. Eventually, he he got on the program. He accepted it. It was one of my favorite years. Oh, and I love that guy. I love that guy. He'd ask me questions. Yeah, he, he was stubborn now. He was stubborn. That's oh, he was the most stubborn <laughs> man in the world. But once he, he relented, he, he was just, he had a really good time. And he'd come to me, he said, Booney, I'm thinking about getting a car. <laughs> he goes, I need a car that's, that seats 10, but I don't want it to be too long. <laughs> I said, Tony, what are you going to do? What are you going to have one of those triple-decker buses go straight up? But, man, what a year that was. I, I, I enjoyed That's him Tony. so much. I, I enjoyed him so much. Your first All-Star game, I mentioned you got to face Doc, who you, who you grew up in the backyard hitting off. How was that for you? It had to be a special moment. It was a special moment, and not only that for my family, you know, especially my granddad. You know, that's what he lived for and he wanted to see. And he got to see it, you know. Um, I, I, I ground out the shortstop the first time I faced him and then I got a base hit. And then the next time I faced him, I hit a home run that, uh, Thompson, the center fielder, I think his name, Ryan Thompson went over the wall and caught it. And so for me, it was like a, a, a 50, 50 win, you know, for the both of us, you know, I didn't give up a home run. I mean, he didn't give up a home run to me and I didn't get one off of him, but I got a hit. And so I finally got him in spring training. I hit a home run off of him in spring training, but he said it don't it don't count because it's not on your bubblegum card. So, <laughs> so you know we, right. we joke about those things. And and as a family member, you know what it's like to play against your family, man. It's a special moment, and, and it's a, it's not too many people can say that multiple people made it in their family. Yeah, it it's it is cool. It is cool. Um, ninety three, you're an all star again. You hit two ninety four. Hit twenty home runs, um, and you're traded to the Marlins mid season for Trevor Hoffman. So you're right. part of a lot of big trade. You, you, you're that's yeah. a pretty big trade right there. You're going. Hoffy's going to San Diego. Everybody knows what Hoffy did uh, in San Diego. Him and Tony are probably the pillars of that organization. And you're off to the to the Marlins, who are pretty new team. Pretty new team. You, you know, you know, your expansion right. league. Years later, you know, we'll get into that when we get there. But what were you thinking when when you got traded to the Marlins? What were What's going through your mind? Were you were you pissed? Were you leaving San Diego? You're going to Joe Robbie Save with. By the way, I couldn't see there. It was like there were football lights <laughs> and, it, and it rained every day at four o'clock. Yeah, it did. It did. It did. You know, the thing about that was for me, I, I was in tears when I left San Diego because I thought after almost winning the Triple Crown that I would be there for life. And you know, Warner Brothers, you know, they couldn't afford to pay me. 
So I had to move on, me and Fred McGriff, and, you know, probably weeks at a time had to get traded. And um, so that kind of hurt at the beginning. But then when I realized where I was going, I was going back home. And so when you're going home, that kind of take the, the pain away a little bit. And uh, when I got there, um, they, they brought me in the office and told me, we're making you the first franchise player. And um, we just want you to just go out here and uh, be yourself and um, and just grow. We're going to bring players here. Eventually, we're going to win. We're going to win in five years. And we just want you to be patient with everybody. And I said, okay, no problem. And I just went out and played my game. You know, played hard. We lost a lot. But at the same time, they had that communication open with me. And so they was walking me through it. And so they knew I was frustrated by the losing. But at the same time, they would call me in the office and tell me, you know, you're doing great. You know, we're going to get the players you need. We know what we need. Just be patient. And so I understood that. And that's what I appreciate about Dave Dombrowski, Jim Leland, those guys, because they was honest with me. Um, Renee Latchman, all those guys was honest. And so when when the, everything transpired to go out and spend a little money, bring in some players so we can be really serious about, you know, contending and, when we got past the Braves and we beat them uh, 14 out of 18 games during the season, we really knew that we can win the championship. And so that's what wound up happening. In 94, you hit 27 jacks. 95, you hit 324. 96, you're an all-star again. And, and you have a huge year. You hit 42, drive in 120. And then we get to that 97 World Series. All I remember is LeVon Hernandez throwing balls by a foot off the plate and Eric Gregg ringing everybody up. <laughs> but you guys, you, you guys end up winning it. Uh, it was the fifth year, first World Series for for the Marlins. Uh, take me through that World Series year. You know, I, I have a lot of guys on on this podcast, and and a lot of guys that were fortunate enough to get to a couple World Series and win, and then a lot of great players out there that that never got that opportunity. So now when I watch these guys and and, and I see somebody world, win a World Series, I just don't kind of ho-hum and I think, man, that's really special because not everybody right. gets to do it. Take me through that 97 season, especially for a, an expansion team. And and like you said, you got Jim Leland, Leland at the helm and they've been telling you all along, chef, just be patient, be patient. It finally came to fruition. Well, it was it was the mission was one heartbeat, and when we got LeVon Hernandez, everybody was excited because we had made some important signings in Kevin Brown, we got Al Leiter, and we got uh, Alex Fernandez from the White Sox. And so, when we looked at our rotation, and uh, we we said, "There's no way we're we're, we're not going to win the championship," and so we took on that mission from day one. And Jim Leland uh, pulled us all, you know, together as a group. And we had that first conversation. And he said, you know, I'm the leader. I want you guys to follow what, what, what I, you know, what I instruct you guys to do. And we're going to win. And so we, I've never heard a statement so strong and so powerful and so direct. It was like he was speaking in, to an existence. And so I said to myself, okay, this this guy's a real leader. He he coached Barry Bonds. And when I was going out to the field for the first day, he put his arm around me and it's on a bubblegum card. And uh, me and him together, he was walking me to the field with his arm around me. And he told me this team is only going to grow as far as you take us. 
And, and unfortunately, I got hurt. I had a back injury for the first time in my career that whole year. It was, it was, it was bad. And he, what, he, what he instructed the team and he instructed me is to not talk about it because he didn't want nobody to know I was hurt. So he told me, you're a fear factor when you walk up to the plate and they're going to walk you and put people on, put you on base. We got guys to drive them in. And so I just played my role. I didn't care about stats. I didn't care about numbers. I went out there to win. And uh, when we brought Moses Alou there and Bobby Bonilla, those guys used to sit behind me and just rack up RBIs. And so it was a pretty easy job to, 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 to go out there and do because I knew that my manager had my back and he understood me. And uh, no matter what nobody said, he was going to support me. And so with that being said, I would have ran through a wall for that guy. And so when we went through that whole year, LeVon Hernandez, when he took the mound, we realized how good he was right away. We just had to keep him away from Wendy's. <laughs> so <laughs> that, was the, <laughs> that was the thing. So when he discovered Wendy's in the States, he lost his mind. And so that's, that's what, the, you know, they, they put people around him to, to make sure he watches weight. And um, so he can go out and pitch. And Alex Fernandez got hurt. When he got hurt, nobody blinked an eye. And we continued to say, we're still going to win. And that's what we went out and did. And when LeVon went out there and pitched that game against the Braves, which being in right field, you don't really realize how big that strike zone was until you saw it in, on tape. But you realize, man, that was a big strike zone. So, But people don't realize that they was calling it that way both ways. Because you and I know – Playing for the Braves, former yep. Braves, Maddox, Glavin, all those guys used to get that outside corner, probably probably two or three inches outside. And so, for once, we got the calls, and the fortunes changed. Yeah, and and to his credit, you know, if you if you find, you know, as hitters, we 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 all we ask is. Uh, umpires is listen establish your zone and be consistent with it and tip my cap to Levon. it's like and you know you played on those braves teams where it's maddox smoltz and glavin if, if they're getting off the plate they're not going to throw it over the plate these guys have good enough right. control and Levon especially he he really had uh pinpoint control he was awesome and uh right. To his credit, you know, uh, Eric's got a big zone today. Well, why would I throw one in the middle of the plate when I'm getting this one off the plate? But uh, that's pretty awesome. You win the 97 World Series. That team get broken up pretty quick. 98, uh, you're an all-star again, uh, but you get traded to the Dodgers midseason. Now you're going to L.A., you're going to Hollywood. You have some huge years there. But what were your thoughts again? You're getting traded again. Well, it was one of those things where here we go again. You know, I had a blanket, no trade clause. Dave Dombrowski, Jim Leland called me in the office. And, you know, they, they, they traded me without my wishes. And I was upset about it. And, um, you know, they, they called me in the suite, uh, their suite in uh, Atlanta. And they said, you know, we have a trade with you uh, going to the uh, Dodgers. And, and Gary, I think you should take it. And I said, no, I'm, I'm good where I'm at. I'm going to play it out. I'm going to honor my contract on and on and on. And they said, and then Jim Leland spoke. He said, Gary, I'm not going to be here. I'm leaving because I'm not trying to rebuild. I'm not going to be part of this. And I, and I, and I, and I love you like a son. And I, and I suggest you consider 
making this happen because you're not going to like losing. This is what is going to get real bad. And when he said that to me, I took it in consideration, but I still wasn't doing it until Jim Eisenreich and Charles Johnson came to me and said, um, Charles Johnson came to me and said, you know, my agent said if, we, if I go to the Dodgers, they're going to give me a five-year deal. And Jim Eisenreich, don't talk, he don't talk a lot. He's just a class-like guy. And he said, Gary, you know, let's go to L.A. And when those two guys came to me, that kind of put pressure on me a little bit to make that decision to, to go to L.A. And I made the decision based on those guys, not myself. It was good to you. I mean, you hit 301, 325, 311, 34, 43, and 36 homers, respectively. So, obviously, you like you like playing at Dodger Stadium. How did you like that life, though? I mean, that's – you know, now you're primetime. You're Dodger Stadium. You're L.A. Did you like that? <laughs> yeah. Did you like that or you didn't care? It's baseball is baseball. It's baseball. It's baseball to me. I, I, I really didn't care. Uh, after I got traded the first time, I really didn't buy in it by the system anymore. I, I really didn't I, until I got to the Florida Marlins. That's when I really bought into their system because they came to me and said I was a franchise player. But after that, I really didn't care anymore. It was about going and play baseball, try to win, and um, you know, and that's what I did. I just went out there and I did my best. And uh, wherever they put me, wherever I play. Um, my numbers are going to be the same, and that's how I approached it. Got traded to Atlanta after the 01 season. I have two great years there. You're an all-star in 03. Uh, and then comes a time for you in Atlanta. You, you spent two years there, but you're not getting traded. You get to choose, and this time you're a free agent. You ended up signing with the Yankees. Right. Well, you know, Vladimir Guerrero was, was probably the biggest free agent that was signed in that year, but he's five years younger than me. I, I knew that, but I, but I like, like I always told anybody that would listen, his number is not going to be any better than mine. You know, you can take the youth, you can do whatever, but I'm telling you, as long as I play this game, his numbers ain't going to be better than mine. And so we went at it back and forth for the MVP that year. Um, when I signed with the, the Yankees, when he chose to go to Anaheim Angels, and, um, you know, me, you ask me any day of the week, I feel like I should have won that MVP because we had the uh, division wrapped up by seven games and we didn't really play that much in September because we were resting for the playoffs and he was able to stockpile numbers. And I was, I was sitting on the bench and not playing as much and um, just resting for the playoffs. And so he wound up winning the, the MVP the last week of the season because he had a big hit to get his team in the playoffs. And so I, I always said, you know, that that's an award that I, I would never respect after that decision was made because when they took the MVP away from me in San Diego when I was almost triple crown and I lost it on the last day when Fred McGriff hit two home runs and Darren Dalton drove in six runs the last day of the season, and I didn't win it then. I didn't respect the award anymore. And so I just played the game to make as much money as I could and then and then try to win as many championships as I, as I could. And outside of that, I really didn't care. Yeah, because this game, you know, and, and we've all been through the – you talk about that. I still to this day told Ichiro, I said, oh, one, that's really my MVP anytime you want to send it over here. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, 
it, and I remember, you know, and this is where having a dad that played for 19 years, he gave me such good advice over the years. Sometimes I took it, sometimes I didn't. But when I look back on it, it was always the right advice. And some right. years, you know, when you get snubbed for an all-star game or a gold glove or something where, man, I should have won it that year. And, and I'd talk to my dad about it. And he, he'd just look at me like, are you serious? Are you done crying now? He said, listen, Brett, I'm going to teach you one thing. I'm going to teach you one thing. Life isn't fair. It's never fair. Right. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. All you can do is play your ass off and whatever happens, right. happens. You can't control what those guys and who they vote for. Uh, right. The only thing you can do is overwhelm them and knock those walls down. But nobody's going <laughs> to if once that season's over and you lay your equipment down, uh, it's up to the voters. And if they give it to you, they give it to you. So I, I know what you're talking about, that those snubs. And, right. and uh, you know, we got to move on. And it's no good to right. talk about it. And and that does no good when you're playing. It's just like, all right, you know, next season, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's, let's do it let's again. But yeah. Oh, three. I mean, again. pretty awesome. 330, 39, <laughs> 132. You sign with the Yankees. You're going to the Big Apple. I never play there. I It was my favorite place, Chef, to go. I, not just to Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium, but. I just love the whole thing. Just four days, you know, we're staying downtown and just walking down the street to go get a coffee in the morning. And I'd have some New Yorker yelling at me from the other side. We're going to kick your ass tonight. You know, I just something about New York. I loved. I always thought, man, one day before I retire, I'd like to play there. It never worked out for me. How'd you how'd you like uh, being the home team playing for the Yankees? Well, I, I can say this, Brett, you know, watching you from far. You know, I always took you to be that type of person and player, um, and I wasn't wrong. You know, I, I felt like you, you, you like chaos just like I like chaos. And the more you make it difficult, I, I'm about showing you I told you so. And I'm going to show you that all this yelling and screaming you're doing at me, it ain't going to affect me. It's just going to ignite me. And so that was the kind of player I was when I went to the Yankees and, and played everywhere else. I was the same way. But when I went to the Yankees, I never got booed one time. I never got booed one time. But the chaos was so strong and the intensity was so strong. Before every single game, it felt like opening day or the playoffs or the biggest game of the year. It was always that feeling. No matter what the situation was, if we go play against Baltimore, Toronto, Boston, whoever, the question is, you know, this is a big game for Toronto. They're trying to measure where they had as a team against the Yankees. For us, it was just another game. But if we didn't match their intensity, they would beat the brakes off us. And so going there, you knew you had to have your A game every single day because everybody was coming for the top dog. And so that was exciting for me, and they brought the best out of me. Yeah, you're right. I mean, travel when you're with the Yankees, I see it today with Aaron Rannage and the Yankees, the way they travel. I mean, it's like a, it's like, a, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's, it's a different animal than, than the teams we play on. And it doesn't matter who, who the nucleus of players are. They change over the years, you know, guys retire, new yeah. guys come in, but it's the same fanfare that follows that Yankees. Cause they're the Yankees, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, it, it's a real interesting thing. How'd you like Steinbrenner? Steinbrenner was the only guy that wanted me to be a Yankee. You know, he was the guy that I've known all my life being in Tampa. <clears throat> my granddaddy and George Steinbrenner was very close. 
And he said that one day I'm, I'm going to get, get you guys on my team. You know, he was speaking of me and Doc. And I said I was I would I would be honored to be on that team, and when I when I came to him um, about signing there, um, Brian Cashman and Joe Torrey didn't want me there. Uh, they wanted Vladimir Guerrero, and so George overruled them and said I want Gary, and he chose me, and I played the game not to let him down, and so he only required one thing: play hard and win, and that's it. I'm going to pay you what you, you deserve, and uh, now I need you to go out there and play hard and win. And that was it. So that was easy for me when I knew what the, the owner expected out of me. And if I had any kind of issues, come to him. So that made it easy as well. So I didn't worry about who was managing me, who was my general manager. All I cared about was pleasing George. I really like George. I never, I never knew him, but I, I like the way he ran it. And everybody, oh, he's mean and he's this, he's that. I said, you know what? <clears throat> I played this game a long time, and I don't care if anybody's mean. I played for organizations that that don't go out and and build the best team for you. We got a window of opportunity to to win as much as we can, and it's a it's a small it's a small snapshot in our life because one day we get old and we can't play anymore. And I always respected those those owners that would at any cost I'm here to win. And you right. know, he might be a little bit out there and he might say some things that are on the front page <laughs> of the paper. If I'm not playing well, mock me all you want, say whatever you want in the paper, but at that trading deadline, go get us the, the players that, that give us a chance to win chance to win a championship. That's the type of guy I wanted to play for. It seemed like Steinbrenner was that type of guy where he's there to win and he's rough and he doesn't always say the nicest thing and he's not politically correct, but he wants to win. And and for me, that's all I want from an owner. Well, you know, he used to always say, you know, despite what I say or what I do, it's all men in the room. Yeah, I don't see yep. any, any kids in here. I see grown men, and if grown men can't handle what I'm saying, you don't. You, you're not a Yankee, and so that that was understood. And guys that that understood that played well in New York. Guys that feared that didn't play well, and that's why people always say, "Why is it tough to play in New York?" Well, it was tough to play in New York because you had a demanding boss, and so and that that's the the, the long and the short of the story. You know, it it wasn't New York. It was the George Steinbrenner. You didn't play well. He's going to find a way to get you out of there. Yep. You're an all-star in 04 and 05. Uh, after the 06, you get traded to the Tigers. Uh, you're there 07 and 08. You hit 25 homers in 07 and 08. You hit 19. You end up signing with uh, the Mets for what will be your last season. You get a chance right. to hit your uh, – Pretty awesome. I mean, there are not too many people uh, in that in that club, and you're in that club. You hit your 500th homer. Uh, take me through that day and and how important that was. Well, you know, when I got to the Mets, um, you know, I, I was there with some pretty talented players, and I felt like we would win the championship there as well. That's why I chose to go there. Um, Jerry Manuel, he was the guy that he said, "Gary, you're going to be coming off the bench." And then, you know, if you, you show that you're healthy and then you, you got a chance to, to take over left field. And so going in, I knew that. So I, I just prepared myself to take over left field. And so I used to come in to pinch hit. I would get walks. They were pitching me like I was playing every day. 
And I was kind of getting bored with it, and I was thinking about retiring. And so I just said to myself, just see it all the way through, and everything will turn around. And when I start getting hits and start playing well, uh, on May 28th, he came to me and said, you're the everyday left fielder. And when I, when he said that, I wound up hitting 10 home runs um, before the All-Star break, and I was hitting 314, and I had like 40-something RBIs. And so I said to myself, I'm loving the game again. Now I'm going to go out here, have a big second half, and then, then come back and continue to continue my career. But on April the 17th, um, I came in to pinch hit, and, we, and, and this, the crazy part about this, we're playing the Milwaukee Brewers. I wasn't even thinking about who we was playing because my my mental wasn't on who we was playing. I was I was more focused on my situation than anything else. That particular game, I had a, a, a long at bat, fouling a bunch of pitches off, taking a couple of good pitches, and all of a sudden he came right in my wheelhouse. And I put the perfect swing on this ball, and I didn't even feel the ball go out. When I hit it, I knew it was gone because I didn't feel it. And I just threw my hands up. And when I threw my hands up, I wanted to start crying because this is something I've been working my whole life for, is to be be considered great. And I thought that once I hit this home run, I would be considered great. And when I hit it and I ran around first base, the first person I saw – was Prince Fielder. I couldn't even stop to shake hand. I didn't know what to do. You know, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Stop, shake his hand, high five him, anything. I just just ran around the bases and I was just I didn't feel my legs, I didn't feel anything. And when I got the home plate, I saw my parents uh standing there and everybody on the you know, out of the dugout cheering and so happy for me. And I and I realized all of that I've been through in twenty two years of my career this is what it's about. And so despite what people say and what people's done, this is what this made it worth it. And so I pointed to my family. I told them it's, it's done. It's over. I've done it. Now I can relax and kind of like look around and enjoy baseball like I really wanted to. Yeah, that's off. There's not too many members of that club. Uh, you go on to hit 509, and and you end up uh, 09 is the last time you played. Uh, almost 1700 ribbies, 299 or 292 career. Um, talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame. I'm I'm very mixed on a lot of things. I watch year after year. I have guys that I think should be in. Um, you know, I, we all question a lot of things. You know, a lot of guys have to wait a long time. Uh, you, I think you got 40.6% last year. You're you're trending up. But, you know, I, we had Trevor on. Trevor got in his last, you know, his last year on the ballot. Edgar got in his last year on the ballot. He said he thought it'd never happen. Um, do you think much about it at this stage going into each and every year, or you're like, you know what? It's like everything else. If it happens, it happens. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Brad, it's interesting. You brought that up because I'm, you know, I'm open about anything and open to talk about anything. And my, my take on it is, is that you have to go through the process just like everybody else. I'm no different. You know, a lot of people may think a lot of people are hall of famers that are not. And, and a lot of people that they thought wasn't, is and so the process is the process nobody has a blueprint 
of who's a Hall of Famer and who's not. All I know is that when it came to me and the MVP, anything that I accomplished in my career or didn't accomplish, the, you know, they moved the goalposts every time I get there. And so with that being said, all I do is do what I can do. I can't go back and hit another home run. I can't go back and do anything else. All I can do is, 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 is respect the decisions that people make. And I hopefully, you know, God would get, you know, reach them and make them understand that what I, what it took for me to do what I did from a childhood of eight years old, going to little league world series, <clears throat> winning the championship, being a number one pick and being worthy of that number one pick and doing what I've done. I, I know I'm a hall of famer. I don't need nobody to validate, to tell me that I know I am. And so that's what I hang my hat on. When I walk outside, people treat me like a hall of famer. So that's, a, that's more than enough for me. If it happens, great. Would it be great for me? Oh, it'd be awesome, but it'd be more, my family would be more ecstatic that that would happen, that my family, this is for my family. And that's what, that's all I care about. If they want me to, to be in the hall of fame and they fight for me every day. And that's, that's what I want it for my family. Yeah. And I think chef, you know me well enough that, you know, I'm going to be honest with you too. Uh, contrary to what people might think because my openings on the Boone podcast are so smooth. I actually write them and I, and I, and I wrote it this one. And it said, I'm, I'm going to re reread it here. I sit down with one of the most feared hitters of my generation. And that's how I truly feel. And, and, and it's not a matter of opinion. I mean, if we go back and we asked all the guys that we played against for 10, 15 year period, Gary Sheffield is always going to come up in that conversation of one of the best hitters of our time. One of the best run producers of our time that goes without saying, then the numbers aside, the set, like I said, almost 1700 ribbies over five, you're in the 500 club and almost at a 300 average, uh, Brett Boone, you, you get my vote. I know that doesn't matter, but, uh, I it think does it's silly to me because I, I appreciate you, man. No. Cause I think right. one day if Gary Sheffield's not in the hall of fame, I think that's, that's not good for this game. And uh, I have faith that it, that it will happen. I know you got a few years left, uh, but but you know there's a lot of things that are right about this game, and, the, and there's some things that are wrong. But but uh, I hope one day you get in because you you definitely on merits and, and the type of player you were. There's more to it a hall of uh, a hall of fame than just the numbers. The numbers you got to have. But we, you know, me and you have been out there in the battles for a lot of years. And it's a feeling you get when you're with another player. You say, that guy's in the Hall of Famer. I, he, he's, he's a Hall of Famer. And when they come up in the battle, of course, he's a Hall of Famer. I played against him for 10 years, and, and it just felt like he was. There's a difference. There's a difference, and, and you definitely had that. Uh, there's a few guys. And, and, Chef, you were talking to Gwen. The thing about Tony is I, – I, and, and I got to play with Johnny Olerud, one of my favorite teammates of all time. And we'd talk hitting and I'd look at him. I'd say, Johnny, I can't talk about you're left handed. Everything's coming into you. I need a righty. <laughs> yeah, that can, that's right. I'll go to that's Edgar right. and we'll talk about that. But uh, there, there's a couple stances in especially our generation that if you've got a long lens camera and, and you can't, you know, you're far away. There's a couple guys that will always you always know who they are. And one is Jeff Bagwell 
who we both played against for a lot of years. And the other is Gary Sheffield with that famous, you know, the way you, the way you twitch that bat. Uh, Where did that come from? Where'd that stance come from? You just make it up one day and that was comfortable. Actually, you know what, Red, I'm going to be honest with you. I made it up because I wanted to be different. And, and, and I said, I want my own style. I used to love Ricky Henderson and everything Ricky Henderson did. It was Ricky Henderson style. And so I, I would always play with things with my bat and stands, with the way I hold my bat. Everything I did, the way I run, how I wear my uniform, everything I did, I wanted to be stylish like Ricky Henderson. And so I just created this thing in batting practice, and I wound up hitting 10 balls out with this batting stands. And I said, I'm going to try it in the game. And I tried it in the game, and I wound up hitting two home runs. And the rest is history. So I felt comfortable doing it. And so a lot of people thought that me moving the bat like that, they can come inside on me. And I would do it harder to bait them inside. And <laughs> sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But some nights when you, you're on your game, you don't even feel that bat moving. It became my Joe Morgan with the, the elbow going into my ribs. It, it was the It was the – different batting stances that you saw the all the generations you played and that was just my style and 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 I and I owned it and I and I knew what I was doing with it and I think you passed it on I don't know somewhere on Instagram something a gram <laughs> I saw one of your kids and and there was yeah. a caption and I saw Sheffield and I'm like look at that kid he's got the same stance <laughs> and yeah, I don't know which yeah. one that is but you passed it on definitely yeah, my uh, 19-year-old that's at Georgetown, he has the stance. He does it. Uh, he just hit a, he hit a home run in the last game as a, a freshman. And my that the one you, 15-year-old, and and my 13-year-old, everybody that see them play, they 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 talk highly of them, and they feel like these kids are coming next. And what I try to do with my kids is I make them work harder because. When people start talking about you, there's no time to gloat in the glory. It's time to get the work because everybody's coming for you now. And so when I look at them play, I look at myself, and all I do is just smile because they want it just as much as I did, and they want to break all my records. They want to do all of those things, and, and I'm there to assist them and um, achieving their goals. You did some time at TBS. Uh, Gary Sheffield, never, never afraid to speak his mind. Did you find being, being in the studio and, and being given the opinions, did you ever find it uh, tough? Did, did, what were the challenges for you? I guess is what I'm asking. And as players and, and you know, we're asked a lot is, what do you do in between at bats? Well, I know what I used to do. I used to go up into the tunnel. I want to watch. I want to watch the monitor. Usually, it's you know, it's in the clubhouse and and there's volume, so you're going to hear the commentators. And once in a while, I'd pick up something. I go, hey, wait, wait a minute. What did he say? But I'm really there <laughs> watching the pitchers. I'm watching tendencies. I'm watching how he's pitching this guy because he's probably going to pitch me similar. But in the meantime, we're hearing the commentary. So. uh what were the challenges for you on the, on that uh, doing the TBS gig, and did you enjoy it? I, I did enjoy it. Um, I grew to, to love it actually, and um, but the challenges was you know when you're in those board meetings and talking about you know what you're going to talk about that night, 
And um, I learned to really keep my opinion until I go on air. I would say whatever, you know, something similar to what I was going to say, but I had a lot of thoughts and ideas that I thought would bring attention to what I was saying and and, and it, everything I say was factual, then that would make the the, the network uh, more viewable. And so that was the first lesson I learned. The second one I, I learned was I had to meet these kids where they're at. It's not these kids' fault the way they play the game. It's the sabermetric guys that then took over the game that has these kids playing this way, order for them to get a contract or even bent or be relevant. And so I don't knock these kids the way they play the game. Like I said before, I just don't like the style of play and I don't have to watch it because it's not attractive to watch. Because, you know, when you hit a when you hit a home run, that's such a special treat to to the public and the viewers. But now it's coming so regular, but it's paying a price of the strikeouts. It's a big price to pay when you're hitting these home runs. It brings more strikeouts. And when I see that, that can't be healthy for the game. And so for me, those are the things that when I talked about the game, I tried to meet them where they was at, but at the same time, talk about the game the way it's supposed to be played. You moved on from there. Are you an agent now? Well, I do. I did that for just helping guys. They called me because they knew I did my own contract, and they would okay. call me to help them with their contract. So I got my license just for that reason. I did it, but I have too much time to spend with my boys to make sure they fulfill their dreams. Yeah. What What advice do you have for kids today coming up pursuing their dream? The first first thing I would tell any kid is when you think you're working hard, you're not working hard enough. The thing is, is that when somebody tells you, oh, I, you need to play for this team or play for that team because travel ball is taking over the sport, you need to play for a coach that has just as much as, just as much passion as you do, and he wants to develop you. If you're playing for a coach that want to win ball games, that's not the right coach. Find a coach that wants to develop you, that's going to allow you to go out there and play, going to allow you to go out there and fail. When you find your successes, you're going to appreciate every moment of it because you're never going to want to go back to those failures. So that's the number one lesson I give kids every day. Gary Sheffield, it was a pleasure uh, having you on the show. There's a lot of interesting, great stuff. Uh, Best of luck on that Hall of Fame. You should be there. Like I said, the guys that played against you for all those years, your peers, uh, they know what Gary Sheffield is, and they know he belongs in the Hall of Fame. What we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, back for a question from the fans. Dan? Gentlemen, how are you guys? We're doing super. All right, all right. Gary, this one comes from LB in Long Island. I wants to know, what was the hardest and furthest you've ever hit a home run, and do you remember who it was off? Actually, the home run I hit the farthest, um, uh, I don't know the name of the player. I was the player that played the game, didn't really like pay attention to who I hit home runs off or how far they went off of him or whatever. 
but I know I hit one at Yankee Stadium in the upper deck. And I, I've never seen a ball go up there as long as I was there. And so when my ball went up there, I knew that ball was hit far. And uh, so it, it, they had measured it. at uh, they, Well, when they said the only players that went up there was Dave Winfield and I think one other guy, I think Jesse Barfield or whatever, um, when that ball went up there, they measured it at, uh, I think they said it was like 485. Whoa. All right. And this one I've asked Boone before, and it, it goes to you too, a hitter of your caliber. If there was a pitcher you could face off against, past or present, who would it be? If I would face what? If there was a pitcher you would like to hit, try to uh, swing a bat at, or try to hit, <laughs> no, hit, no, one, no. hit one Dan, off of, if Dan, you will. Dan, let me let me let me clear it up. For give you, it, give what, him his baseball terms. What he's asking for, what he's asking you for is: is there anybody if you could go back in the history or a current player that you haven't played against? If you could get one AB, anyone in the past or anybody current, who would it be? There, Dan. That's I said, I, I pretty it, much it, said it, the same it would thing. Be, it would be Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson, okay. Yes. Yes, it will be Bob Gibson. All right. Okay, well, sir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. (laughs) I appreciate you guys having me. Mailbag. Okay, Boone, you know what time it is. That would be mailbag time, Dad. Mailbag time. All right, Boone, we all know that you're a health nut, but when it's time to... Take on a fast food item and crave that craving. Do you prefer a Big Mac, a Whopper, Wendy's, like we heard Gary Sheffield talking about, or Taco Bell? Uh, shoot, if I'm going to go off the map, I'm not going. Hey, I, I'll tell you, I love a good quarter pounder with cheese from McDonald's. It is pretty awesome. But if I'm going off track, I'm going to get a big pizza or I'm going to go to In-N-Out Burger. You got to go animal style, right? But I, I don't go animal style. I usually, yeah, I'm such a wuss. I, I, and I get the protein style, so I don't even get the bun. I get you just the, get the lettuce. I get the, I get the lettuce. It's, I'm a tired act. But when push comes, I'm, I'm telling you, I never go there. Because it seems so, you know, if, if I'm going to have a big night and just go for it, I figure, oh, I got to go to In-N-Out Burger. You know, I can't just go to McDonald's. They're on every corner. Right. Special. But when it comes right down to it. That quarter pounder with cheese, as far as consistency and good, you can say whatever you want. It's junk food. It's bad for you, whatever. That quarter pounder with cheese tastes good. It is good, but you're right. The longer you stay off that stuff and you finally have it, it is really salty. I just had, that a, is. Yeah, I just had, is. I just had a Big Mac the other day, and I was like, wow, that is saltier than I remember. Yep. Okay, well, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer, voice of the show. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast that all gets taken care of by Liz Landry. Thanks, Liz. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.